released on Sunday, March 23, 2014, in St. Louis, Missouri, This Agile Life, Episode 41, Dave Gave Me Goosebumps. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Amos King. Good evening, John. Hey, Amos, how are you? I am doing absolutely fantastic today. I know you had a rough day, but hopefully it'll get better. Oh, I'm, I'm just super excited about our guest tonight. As we all are. Also joining us tonight, after a long overdue respite, Craig Buchek. Hello, guys. Hey, Craig, how are you? I'm a little under the weather. I think it's allergies. I hope it's allergies and not something worse. We're glad you can join us. Also, Jason Tice. How are we doing, John? What are we trying to improve this evening? We're sure to find out. Guys, we have a super special guest joining us tonight. Dave Thomas is joining us. Dave Thomas is one of the originators and signers of the Manifesto for Agile Software Development. Dave famously co-authored The Pragmatic Programmer with Andy Hunt. Dave and Andy have parlayed the success of The Pragmatic Programmer into The Pragmatic Bookshelf Publishing Company. They've published more than 100 books and have earned the trust of tens of thousands of developers all over the globe. In addition to writing books, Dave speaks publicly and blogs about software development, and Dave joins us tonight to talk about one of his recent posts titled, Agile is Dead, Long Live Agility. Dave, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, it's totally my pleasure, John. I'm really pleased to be here. We are very pleased to have you, sir. We've all read your article, and uh, I know it's inspired quite a few conversations all over the Internet, as well as in our little corners of the world. Can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this article? Oh, wow. Okay. I guess the main motivation was shame, I guess. I've been um, watching the Agile world for the last 13 years, and I've been a little unhappy as I've gone along, seeing how things have kind of gotten out of hand. And that unhappiness peaked. I was at a conference uh, in India, actually my very, very first Agile conference, probably after that article, my last. And I was sitting in the bus coming from the airport, and behind me were two speakers, both of them Agile consultants. And they were talking about all sorts of things. They were talking about the products that they sell and the services that they sell and the training that they do. And it felt to me just like I was sitting on an airport bus listening to two, I don't know, shoe salesmen talking about what they did. There was no passion there. There was no great drive. It was very much just, you know, this is what business is. And then one of them said to the other, when was the last time, you know, you pushed any code. And the both of them, they sat there and they thought about this for a while. And they came up with 1993. And this was was just in 2013? This was, uh, actually, it was in 2014. Oh, my goodness. So I got to thinking about that. Then I was wandering around the conference. And I was looking at the uh, vendor booths. And I was looking at some of the talks. And I was realizing just how far we'd come from the original values. Now, it's perfectly okay for a a technology or a group to move and to progress, but 
When you progress, I don't think you need to progress away from a set of values. You need to add new cool practices and whatever else it might be. But it strikes me that if you want to call yourself agile or whatever it might be, then you have to kind of adhere to the, the values of agility. And that's clearly been forgotten. So I just, given that my name is on the manifesto, I kind of felt I wanted to make the point to say, you know, excuse me, guys, but I don't think this is the way you want to do it. I do not think that the values of agility are in any way wrong. I mean, sure, they could probably do with some brushing up, although I couldn't tell you immediately how. But I think what's happened instead is the name has become almost meaningless as it's been diluted down by people who are misusing it and selling themselves and their services on the basis of that misuse. It's kind of like the way that Kleenex and Hoover try to protect their brand names, you know. If the name becomes diluted to the point where anyone can use it, then it has no value and it has no trust behind it. You can't have confidence that people using it are actually using it in the way that you intend to or the way you understand it. Hey, Dave. So, yes. I've got a question. Why was the word agile chosen? I've never seen any history on that. You know what? It's a really good question. We were sitting around trying to think of a name for this thing that we created, and there were many conversations about the kind of metaphor that we wanted to use. We wanted to give people an image of what it was like. And so some people wanted to use lightweight, for example, but that had kind of negative connotations. I can't remember the other words that came up, but the thing about agile that we liked was that it has the connotations of uh, it's relatively fast, but it's also corrective. So that, you know, when something is agile, it means it's constantly making corrections for things that, you know, little balance corrections or whatever it might be. And that really captured the feedback aspects very, very well. And so I think once we'd sort of like mulled over that word for just a few minutes, it became obvious that's the one we wanted to use. It seems like today, Dave, as I think you've expressed in your article, people have taken the original intention behind the conference, or not the conference, but behind the session you guys had at Snowbird, and have turned this into a slick, wrapped, sellable product, right? They haven't even turned it. They've taken the word and said, okay, I've got an existing you know, 18 feet of documentation that describes my process, I'll put the word Agile on the front of it and sell that on. So if what they'd done is they'd taken the original values and packaged those nicely, then I wouldn't have any issue with this. But instead, I think what's happened is they've basically taken the word, ignored the values, and now just use that. So, like, like marketing tends to get a hold of these things and, and do this with anything that's good. And I believe that everybody on this show will, will tell you that we really appreciate the Agile Manifesto and what you came up with and that it helps us think about where to go. But how do we have a name that doesn't get sucked up by marketing? How do we protect it like that? Like, recently, I can think of, like, cloud. Like, everything is cloud. And so I think people just glam onto that, the marketers do, but how do we make sure to keep it pure and nice moving forward? I don't know if you can, to be honest with you. And I'm not 100% sure it's important to do that. Uh, I think had we realized early on, like early on being within the first you know 20 minutes, that this was going to happen, then maybe we could have taken some steps to prevent it. But now I think you're absolutely right. Uh, a, a good word is going to get used. I mean, potentially somebody somewhere could 
apply for some kind of trademark or something, but then there'd be the issues of who monitored it, who ran it, who allowed people to use it. So uh, you're right. I don't think there is a word that can be used. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. To me, agility is not necessarily a word. It's not a phrase that I would say, okay, let's switch from using agile to agility and that will fix the situation. Uh, what I was trying to say in the article is that let's think of it as agility. And when we're thinking about it for ourselves, let's use a word that means something to us. And maybe that word is agility. Now, that then gives a second problem. I mean, how do you then talk about the overall concepts behind you know, what is now the agile movement? And I think you can do that if you were to expand the phrase slightly. So rather than just talking about, you know, I'm agile, which clearly is meaningless, you could say, I adhere to the values of the Manifesto for Agile Software Development, or some slightly shorter version of that. There, what you're doing is you're not using a word as a brand, you're using a phrase to describe you. And I think that's a, a lot safer way of doing it. Now, that's going to be frowned upon by a whole bunch of people, first of all, because it doesn't fit on business cards anymore. Uh, but it also is going to be tricky. I had people, after that article, people were writing to me saying, how can I possibly recruit people if I can't say I need agile developers? And my response to them was typically, okay, if you want to recruit people and say agile developer, you may as well just say, can fog a mirror when they breathe? Because, <laughs> you know, it, it's... Basically, you're saying human being at this point. It's, it's not a discriminating expression. So I don't think we necessarily lose anything by losing the ability of just using the single word agile as a brand. See, Dave, one thing I wanted to add, and, and we've talked about this on a lot of the prior episodes of the podcast, is how many of the elements of agile are challenging or they're hard to implement. And I wonder if one of the learnings here is the saying that I understand the value to have a single word, but maybe that's that's this challenge to oversimplify things. And to actually the phrase you just articulated, if we actually had a statement that was more inclusive of everything it means to embrace agility, if that would make it harder for people to kind of copy. Maybe. At the same time, what's wrong with it being hard to implement? Why does that drive anything? Craig, I think that you have a saying about this, about people wanting to be agile or have agility, but they don't want to put the work in in order to get it done. And I kind of like that the Agile Manifesto is very simple and it allows some freedom of interpretation because every team is different. Every person is different. And I think that the Agile Manifesto really gets down to something that, you know, we've talked about. We even created a t-shirt on it on here was that we're, we're people, not a resource. So resources are all the same. People are not. And so every situation needs to have a different look at it. And that broadness gives you, it gives you kind of like a, a giant cage to work within. So I came to Agile through Extreme Programming. And Extreme Programming, the name is almost kind of scary. And I'm starting to think maybe that's a good thing. And I'm thinking about going back to calling what I do Extreme Programming instead of Agile. Because it's more specific, first of all. The practices that it espouses are more of the things that I do. Uh, going to, uh, like, Scrum, I, I, I use Scrum. And Martin Fowler has called it flaccid Scrum. It's, it's a, like a, a flaccid agile practice. And I find that it doesn't really do enough to get us to the agility that we're looking for. 
Yeah, I think my, I think I, I unfortunately agree with you. I, I had for a while, uh, high hopes that Scrum would be the kind of gateway drug into agility. But the trouble with Scrum, it's far too easy to take it on the surface and, you know, just go by rote and not actually understand what you're doing. And I see a lot of shops doing just that. You know, we have a stand-up meeting, therefore we're agile. And that just doesn't do it for me. So, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe what you do is maybe, well, maybe the answer is to produce a set of practices that work for you or find a set of practices that work for you, validate for yourself that they fall within your own definition of, of agility, and then say that's what you do. You know, Dave, there's nothing that's more approachable, in my personal opinion, than the Agile Manifesto. It's very simple, straightforward, easy to understand, easy to articulate. But I think what businesses have fallen into is this old trap of not knowing how to go about it. So people have come up with things that they've pre-wrapped and said, here's Scrum, here's this, here's my blueprint document that you were alluding to. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And the problem there is that it's almost like uh, a contradiction in terms is tell me how to be agile. You know, it can't be done any more than I could tell you how to do a golf swing or, you know, how to do a, a triple axle. You can talk about some of the principles, but ultimately the only way to do it is to get out there and practice and get out there and do it. And yes, sometimes coaching is helpful if you get the right coach, but that's very rare. Yeah, I, I think the only way you can learn to be agile is by first not being agile a lot. You know, you, you've got to practice. You've got to aim towards where you want to go and make the mistakes. And as a corporation, you then have to fix those mistakes, learn from them, and move on. Most businesses don't want to make mistakes. Most businesses want to say, this costs too much money. We have to get this right first time. And so as a result, what they're doing is they're settling for some kind of bland, middle-of-the-road, not particularly working thing, you know, on the, on the promise that, you know, agility is the best thing there is and we have to do it using agility. And that's the thing I'm fighting against because what they're doing by doing that is they're, they're not going to get what they want. I think that, you know, you, you touched on something there that to get to agility, you need experience. And I think one of the important things that has really helped me get to where I'm in my career, my opinions, um, I, I wouldn't say that I do extreme programming. I wouldn't say I do scrum. I kind of have found what works for me and every team that I've been on has been a little different, but it's, I think the biggest thing has been the ability for the team to make small changes over time of how they develop, not just like within the software itself, but also their approaches to it. So retrospectives and, and thinking back and talking as a team on how do we get better? And I, I really think that that is the core thing that has stuck with me through agile. The, um, people over over processes like let's not get hung up on on the processes and a lot of people that are using agile as a marketing term are just marketing a process you do this absolutely. process and everything will be perfect absolutely and it, I, I loved uh, i can't remember who it was earlier on who said that resources are plug compatible units and people are each different but this is exactly the point and too many of the processes that we have including i've got to say xp tend to treat people as the same. And it's almost a politically incorrect to even suggest that people have differences. But the reality is they do. And I think that a process that doesn't take that into account is not going to be successful. So I agree 100%. I think, and, and a team is dynamic. People join it, people leave it. And as people join and leave, it would be a mistake not to adapt the processes of that whole 
project team to those people. So, Dave, I have a, a question with that, and it's this idea really, and I, I think it probably is a great way to summarize the increased uh, veracity we've seen in the market about wanting to have some level of standard agile practice. So how do you scale Agile? So if you're in an organization where you have multiple teams, multiple projects, and there's a fine line between standardizing things between teams, which challenges the people on the teams, versus having some level of the ability to move people around, what's your recommendation of how to handle that? Well, that's trivial. You try stuff, and if it works, you keep doing it, and if it doesn't, you don't. So, 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 <laughs> so, no, so, so okay, here's the thing. What you're asking for is an answer that can't be given. There's a, a Buddhist word, mu, or, or sometimes wu, which is basically the answer that means you've got to ask a different question. There is no answer to that question. And in this case, there is no answer to the question, how do you scale Agile? A, because Agile is not a noun, so you can't scale it. But B, it's not scalable because it only scales into a context. So without the context, yeah. there's no answer to that. And there's no standard practice that you can apply that works for that. So, I mean, I don't even know if you can scale it in a whole bunch of organizations uh, sure. simply because, you know, the uh, you know, round peg square hole thing. Well, well, and I appreciate that because, I mean, it validates some of the challenging scenarios I've been in where sometimes, especially, you know, so people who are supporting Agile really at the executive level, they have a misconception that really like maybe all of their Agile teams should look and smell like the same thing and, and maybe even do the exact same practices. And, you know, you're validating really since the teams are a function of the people, that's a fallacy. That's not a realistic expectation. And teams need to be empowered to self-organize and really conduct experiments and do things that enable them to improve. And they should be able to do that in a self-regulating manner. Yeah, there's actually... My wife and I were on the Great Wall of China a few years ago, and the Great Wall is organized as these towers with the, the bits of wall between them. And to get between sections of the wall, you have to go into the towers through a door and then possibly down and then back up again to go to the next section. Whatever it is, there's lots of doorways, and there are millions and millions of people. And my wife and I always took about four times longer to get through these doors than any of the locals. Didn't understand why. So I sort of like stood back uh, up high ones and looked at these doors. And what I saw was people behaving like fluids. And they had optimized their traffic through these doorways, and they looked just like, you know, if you imagine you had water pouring through a, a series of holes, and you like put little ping pong balls or something in it so you could see the motion, it looked just like that. And they had adapted to not only the people around them, but also the circumstances in which they were. So, you know, the, the size of the door, the slope, all this kind of stuff. They were being incredibly, okay, I'll use the word, agile. But they were not doing it consciously. They were just adapting to the situation they were in. So if you wanted to uh, get these processes working in a company, yes, it's an individual process. Everybody has to do things in a way. It's a team process because the team has to adapt to the people in it. But also, it's a corporate process. And that works in two ways. First of all, the corporation provides the context in which the team works. And there are only certain contexts in which you can actually uh, adhere to the values of the manifesto. But also, the corporation actually is, in a way, another member of the team and interacts with the team as such. And so the agility has to adapt not just to the members of the team, but also to the persona 
of the corporation in which that team finds itself. I find that that that's the problem with uh, a lot of larger corporations that are trying to scale agile, and not just larger corporations. There are small corporations that have the same problem: is that the corporation doesn't feel like it's it's a member of the team. They they try to act as like a hand of God and just push everybody however they want without discussing it with them. They just say, "Here's how how it works," and you're done. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, it's interesting. I had a talk with a fairly large uh, multinational. Uh, a few weeks back, and they are trying to change the processes of all of their developers, and they're trying to do it all at once. And their issue is, we don't understand why these developers don't want to change. You know, how do we make them change? And I mean, it's, that's exactly your point. I mean, you cannot make people change. You just provide the right shape hole, and they'll flow into it. You know, that goes back to your article, Dave, and you mentioned what to do if you want. To behave in an agile fashion, you have four things. To find out where you are, take a small step towards your goal, adjust your understanding based on what you learned, and then repeat. It's like the people making it through the doors in the Great Wall of China, as you observed, right? They they did all of those things. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a really good observation, yeah. I would add, though, that those four things, you have to have that, that last process point as well, and that is... As you're doing those four things, there will become times when there's different choices you have to make. You know, do I do it this way or that way? And for me, the thing that cuts that knot is given a choice between two things, always take the ones that makes change easier. What kind of change are you speaking of there? Future change? Any change, any change. It could be a change from uh, a requirements change. It could be an environmental change. Uh, it could be something as simple as the name of a variable. It's anything. I mean, basically, you know, if I was to write a book on design, right, it would simply be do the stuff that makes change easiest. And that's all there is to design, right? Nothing else. So the question then is identifying what is likely to change. And that's where experience comes in. But I think, you know, this, everybody knows things that change, you know, requirements change, the colors of fields on the screen change, you know, how you represent negative numbers changes, uh, tax laws change, all of these things we all know. And I think what you have to do is, is as you go forward, you say to yourself, okay, in my experience, this is a risk that we're taking here. If we codify it this way, then we're going to, we're going to take the risk that, you know, there's a, a change, chance that this change may happen and we're going to be in trouble. If instead we do it this way, then, you know, we'll be able to deal with the change. I'm not saying to create everything you need to deal with every single contingency up front. All I'm saying is, as you go forward, making all of these decisions, both at the micro level and the macro level, change is the decider, you know, with which way you go. So there's problems with the word, you know, the, the word has become you know, less useful. Is there something we can do in our day-to-day practices or our day-to-day interactions with management or people that are using the term wrong that we can work to sort of rebuild the... Uh, I'll use the word, rebuild the brand? We could try. It'd be interesting to try. The obvious things to do is, I think one of the interesting things that was uh, the, the comments that came back to me of that post from developers were basically, you know, thank you, now I've got something to show my manager. Or thank you, you're now validating what I've been saying for the last two years, or whatever it might be. I think developers on the ground, the ones who care, by and large, already know this. This is not a surprise. This is what they live with. 
I think if they want to influence things, there's many ways they can do that. They can go back and revisit the values of the manifesto and then use those as a lens through which to look at the processes they're doing now. And when management, and not just management, I, I'm not into this big management versus developers thing because I don't think that's that's reality. Uh, I understand that in some corporations it is, but in those corporations, basically, there's no hope anyway, so the developers should just leave. You know, in a genuinely healthy organization, it's just people trying to get something done. And I think if developers were to work with their managers and say, okay, I know you want to bring this consultant in, but let's look at what they're actually saying. Right? That what they're saying is not what they bill themselves as. You know, they say, we will help you do agile, I don't know what it might be, you know, agile documentation of requirements or something, you know. And you sit down and you explain that's not actually in line with the values that you said you want us to adopt. And maybe we could work through that way. I don't know. But I, I think the change, agility, the Agile Manifesto, it's a bottom-up thing. That's It's all it was supposed to be. You know, we never had the concept of corporate agility or anything like that. So whatever change does come about, I think, has to come from the bottom. And yeah. the fact that, the, fact that the, the, the word itself has become debased doesn't mean the values are wrong, and it doesn't mean people can uh, have to stop doing the stuff that works. In fact, I would be horrified if the result of this post was that people moved away from agile practices. I don't think they should. I think that you just like, it, really, this was a, a reminder that you can't assume that just because someone calls themselves you know, an agile consultant or they have a software tool that has agile in the name, it will actually adhere to these values. Yeah, what I've been trying to do lately is is point out someone proposes something and it's a step backwards. And what I've been doing is pointing to the Agile Manifesto principle, or actually a value, and saying, well, I'm not sure how that fits with this value. And if we're trying to, you know, proceed, improve using these values, then this isn't going to help. You know, Craig, as, as I listened to, to Dave's response to your question, one thing I thought about that, you know, anyone out there could do and it's really, it's really based upon what we've talked about tonight. It's, it's being committed to doing the right thing, even though the, in many instances, doing that right thing to support agility is harder than other options. Um, the example I'll share is, you know, I, I teach agile training classes and the, the number one question I, I always get as a learning request when we start like our, you know, our agile intro classes, I want to learn the agile process. And, you know, the simple answer to that question is, there isn't a special agile process. There's a collection of values and principles. And in the course, we teach people practices and they can pick and choose what works for them. But that's, some people don't react well to that because they want a magic pill they can take and take back and show their manager and, and just try to follow the steps and hope they'll be successful. And I think we've learned really in the last 13 years that that doesn't work because things are too complicated. One thing that I've well, observed in, in our industry that tends to happen and this happens with a lot of things, is that someone comes up with a word or there's a new phrase that we use. We talk about refactoring, and, and all of a sudden, every time somebody touches a piece of code, they're refactoring it, even though they're not actually doing any refactoring. They may be doing something completely different. There are other things this way, and I think people have done that with the word agile. They've glommed onto it and said, I don't really know what Agile means, but it sounds good, and it makes it sound like my team is adaptable, so I'm going to start saying we're Agile. I think you're right, and I think it goes even slightly further than that. I think that 
there are people who feel very strongly about things. And, you know, I'm not going to ascribe evil motives to them, but they feel very strongly. And this set of words that you're talking about, whether it's refactoring or agile or TDD or BDD or any of this kind of stuff, it gives them, in a way, a weapon in that they can turn around and they can apply this filter to people around them. You know, you aren't agile because you aren't doing this or that or the other. And so you get these people who are really quite aggressive about things that are actually just tools. And I know, for example, in the Ruby community, there's this uh, attitude that, you know, if you're going to check in code and it doesn't have tests, well, I'm not interested in it. Well, okay, that's not really for you to say. The tests are there to support the people who are developing the software, typically. And if it's their choice you know, to do it a different way, that's their choice. You, know, you get to choose whether to use the software or not, but you don't sit there and say, it is a sin not to do this, this, or this. That's not an agile way of looking at things. And that brings up a point. I had another question, Dave. It seems to me like the Ruby community has adopted the most agile techniques and practices. Is, is that my imagination? Is there a reason for that? Actually, I think that's very true, and I think part of the reason for that is that Andy and I were there when the manifesto was created. And so, I mean, on the bus from the airport up to the uh, hotel at Snowbird, uh, we were sitting with Brian Merrick, and on the bus trip, we convinced him to try Ruby. And so he then started a whole series of things on, on Ruby and how he was learning Ruby. And there was basically, I think, just from a, a, a kernel of people at that first discussion, and then subsequently, you know, as we were talking about agility, uh, it kind of fit with the way that uh, that nucleus of Ruby people uh, viewed the world. Uh, I think because of that, it just kind of caught hold there maybe, maybe a little bit sooner. And I think because of that, it kind of like pushed forward a bit quicker. And like I say, I think at times it pushed forward too far or too fast. But at the same time, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the Ruby community's adoption of so many of these these values and the way they've done it. Dave, do you think that there's any value to be had at all from teams that are struggling or or software groups that are struggling or companies that are struggling from spending any time at all trying to do Agile where they just try and find some sort of cookie-cutter process that they can start with? Or is that going to do more harm than good? And should they really try to, as you say in the article, be Agile? I've never tried this metaphor before, so forgive me if it falls flat. But imagine that you were doing a martial art, so say karate of some sort, all right? And someone comes along to your dojo and says, I want to fight with your black belts. And you might say, okay, well, you know, do you have experience? Oh, yeah, of course I've got experience. I've got 10 years in the martial arts. So you say, okay, well, you know, suit up and let's, let's try it. And, you know, within three seconds, they're on their back crying. And they get back up and say, I want to do this. You know, I really want to do this. Bring me a teacher to show me how to do this so to next week I'll be able to fight. And the answer is you're not ready to fight. You're not ready to, to participate in this. You have to go back and do the work. It may well be that for some of these teams, the basics aren't there. And if the basics aren't there, you cannot put in high-discipline practices, you know, such as, for example, XP, on top of it, right? if if they don't currently even do some of the sort of the most basic stuff like talk to each other or you know use version control or whatever it might be, then you're going to be hard pressed to get a black belt onto them. And what we're talking about here, despite people saying to the the opposite, these are advanced practices. 
and they have to be treated as such. You're asking individual developers to make big decisions and take responsibility for those decisions. And that's something you cannot do unless you've got some context in which to do it. So I don't think you can you know, wave a magic wand or attend a, a week-long training course and come out at the end of it, quote, agile, unquote. You can understand things better, but all that really does is arm you to make the next three years' worth of mistakes as you actually learn what was actually meant in that class. You mentioned a few basics. Are there some other basics that you had in mind in terms of helping teams just get that base foundation going? Oh, I, you know, I knew that was a mistake. I, as I was saying it, I was thinking that ah, I, I, I should not mention that because I actually kind of fell into my own trap when I was talking about testing Nazis earlier. <sighs> okay, let me turn this around. You're, you're a smart group of people. What is the, okay, from, from everybody, what is the one essence of programming for you? Who wants to answer Dave first on what oh, is the man. essence of programming? For me, it's, uh, the creativity and and being able to to solve problems to take big problems turn them into small problems it just excites me every day i've been doing this for uh i guess i i wrote my first program to be paid when i was 12 years old so 20 years and i've loved every minute of it and never wanted to stop so it's solving problems i like that answer i i find it sort of creating from nothing you know, it's just using my mind to create something that does something new. That's uh, the, the Fred Brooks answer. The uh, creating, what does he say? Creating castles from castles in the air from pure thought stuff. Yeah, okay, I'll go with that. My answer is, um, this is funny, I would say feedback. It's this idea of doing something with with the program, which, you know, ultimately gives you feedback because either it works or it doesn't. And I think that going through that process is, uh, as Amos said, it's creative, but it's also humbling because it, it can help you improve because you get immediate feedback about what you're doing is either working or not working. So my, I, like I, get, I guess I get to be last. So my answer is I think it's the ultimate expression of thoughts and ideas. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I actually, that's so, I mean, what you're really saying there is it's an art. Yes which I don't disagree with at all. Okay, so we've had four answers which are different but also very similar. All four of you are basically have a passion for this, by the sound of it. And it's a passion that you feel because it gives you something back. It gives you the feedback you were talking about. It gives you the ability to solve problems. It gives you the ability to express yourself, right? And I agree with you. I feel all of those things. And I think all good developers, all great developers, have something like that that they could say about the, the craft of programming. How do you teach that, guys? How do you tell someone, you know, you can't give someone a course and say, you know, at the end of this course, you will realize that what you do is an art form. You can't create passion in somebody. It has to be there. You can't tell Picasso not to paint in blue and, and expect him to still be Picasso. I think you can actually create passion. Well, no, no, sorry, I'll take it back. I think it's really, really easy to destroy passion. And I think that's what most of our environments do for us, is that they take people... I think if you look at, like, a five-year-old, they're passionate about everything, right? Whether it's dirt or painting or climbing, it doesn't matter, right? They have a passion for absolutely everything. 
And their entire process of education is making them lose those passions one at a time so they'll behave nicely in class. Part of our job is to reignite those passions. Now, I'm not saying that every human being can be a great programmer, but I think there are an awful lot of people that could be who aren't simply because that passion was taken away from them. Dave, you mentioned uh, like learning and teaching. I mean, the thing that I'll share that I, I get in all types of training classes, be them more programming classes or even more things even on the Agile side, you know, one of the things that training and learning should do is help people overcome fear so they're enabled to experience that, that creation and that art we're talking about. Agreed 100%. Agreed 100%. I think fear initially is something that's imposed on the outside, and we're kind of conditioned to apply it for ourselves after a while. And liberating people from that is clearly a big step forward to getting them excited about things. I couldn't agree more. It sounds like you're, you're saying the best we can really hope to do is to help people become liberated and try to be inspiring and do that through our own practices and through how we behave and, and operate at work and hope that this rubs off and maybe inspires others. First of all, I don't think that's much of a hope. I think that's pretty much guaranteed. If you're in an environment that can possibly tolerate it, if you're not, then you're not going to be successful whatever you try to do. So, yeah, I, I think that's very much the case. But the bigger question then is, okay, so how do we actually inspire people to do that? How do we tell people it's okay to make mistakes and have them believe it? Um, and I don't know what the answer is to that. I believe that you can do that in training. I personally have not tried to run training courses with that as the sole goal, but certainly one of the things that I like people to get across when they do see me train or when they do see me talk is it always has to be fun. You know, and, you know, I try to have, you know, I always have a slide that says have fun in just about every single one of my talks because that's how you know you're doing it right. You ha- you're having fun and you're making mistakes. Hey, and if those, two, if those two things are there, you're doing it right. Hey, Dave, when you talk about failure and learning from failure, when you're giving a training course, do you sort of lead people to failure and, and show them failure, what it's like to fail at a given thing? And do you talk about your own failures in front of people? Uh, I'm very happy to talk about failures. Um, one of the things we do in the uh, Pragmatic Studio courses is that we have two instructors. And one of the fun things about it is that the instructors get to disagree with each other. And that's always fun. You know, I'll, I'll say something and whoever I'm teaching with will go, that's not right. You know, you don't mean that, do that. And, you know, we'll have a conversation, whatever else. And I think in a way that kind of models some of the kind of behavior we'd like to see. You know, I don't go out of my way to confess, but I, I wouldn't be you know, against doing that because Lord knows I've made more failures than successes probably over my time. And that's, that's what I've learned from. On the topic of fun, Dave, you know, I had, I got one of the highest compliments I think I could ever receive today from a member of our team that said, we have the most fun. And uh, I was just very impressed when the person said that because it's not like we have Nerf guns and and are having, you know, fart fights or anything. It's like we just kind of get along and are able to have fun and, and work hard and get a lot of work done too. But the mere fact that he mentioned that he has a lot of fun on the team was um, very inspiring back to me and motivating to me to keep that going. Yeah, well done to you for a start, and that's fantastic. And, and you're right. I think a lot of the time this whole Nerf gun thing is a proxy for 
we don't know how to create a good environment, so therefore we're going to buy toys at Walmart. And I think that's a bit sad. Uh, a good team can create fun out of the project, I think. And there's all sorts of ways of doing that. I remember Andy and I were working on a debit card switch. So it took in transaction traffic and it, it routed it through to the back ends and it collected back up again and sent it down to the terminals. And this was not part of the spec or anything else, but we built a little um, monitoring console. And basically all it did was show us transaction volumes and dollar amount. And we turned this thing on and we watched the first transaction go through and we you know, just cheered and screamed and everything else. And then within like 20 minutes, it got to a million dollars. And that was like a big thing. And I can't remember if it was that day or the next day, it hit a billion dollars. And for us, that was way more motivating than you know a couple of Nerf guns in terms of having fun of, of seeing your product do something and seeing the result of what you do. And I think that's it comes back to a point someone made earlier on about this idea of solving problems, I think is one of the things that's really big in all developers. We love to solve problems. We love to help people. And this is our way of doing it. And to some extent, the fun that you get is from being able to do that. So maybe that's something we have to teach. Maybe we have to teach people to step back and look at the good they're doing. And maybe that's a way of, of engendering that kind of spirit. That's certainly something that hugely motivated me in my career. And you mentioned the Fred, Bo Fred Brooks creationism, creating castles out of nothing. I mean, that is so empowering to me and so motivating that I can sit down in front of this weird computer thing with a keyboard. And then all of a sudden, as I'm typing, I'm crafting and creating this, this thing that people will use and, and enjoy. And it'll make their life easier and it'll make my life easier. And there's, there's just something hugely motivating and endearing in having the ability to do that. I agree 100%. I think it's even slightly bigger than that. I think if you look at developers as a whole, they like solving problems, but they don't necessarily have to have a keyboard to do it. A good team is a team that pushes back against requirements and says, okay, this is what you said you want, but you know, actually, have you thought about this, this, and this, and maybe you don't want to do it this way? I mean, one of my most successful projects is... I talked my way out of a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar project by getting them to... Uh, they wanted to set up a workflow for uh, responses to letters that an insurance company was sending out. And so the idea was they would have OCR and document storage at the front end, and every single in incoming piece of correspondence would be scanned and OCR'd and then automatically sent to one of like five or six different departments. And they wanted to do this... Uh, it was a big, big, expensive project. And I said, why don't you just put a color-coded bar on all the reply envelopes and send all the blue ones to this department and the green ones to that department? And they kind of looked at me, and it took about 10 minutes for them to think, yeah, that would actually do what we want. And that was it. That was the end of the project. And for me, that was as much fun as coding the whole thing up because you know, I solved the problem, and that gave me the satisfaction. And that's, I think, again, a thing. We're talking about corporate cultures and how, how a company can squash things or enable things. I think a company that delivers requirements on tablets of stone is almost guaranteed to put the developers into a bad mood. A company that says to developers, hey, we've got this problem, what can you do to help us, is one where the developers can use their imaginations, can stretch a little bit. And yet, they'll still end up writing code most of the time but they'll have a bit more ownership in the solution and maybe actually come up with things that the, the business people hadn't thought of in the first place. 
But we could literally probably talk about this subject all night long with Dave. But we are running out of time, and I wanted to give each of my co-hosts a chance, because we're all big fans of yours, Dave, to see if any of them have any personal questions or anything else they'd like to ask Dave before we start to wrap up tonight. Are you going to name us off? (laughs) I I already got mine in. Amos, what was yours? Uh, I I was just saying, are you going to go through all of this? Um, I don't have much to say. I mean, Dave, I picked up your book, Pragmatic Programmer, Journeyman to Master, when uh, I guess that was my freshman year of college when it came out. Uh, because it looked different from all the O'Reilly books on the shelf, <laughs> and it was smaller. <laughs> so um, I, I read, like, the first chapter and was like, oh, yeah, that's great, and I put it away. And then, like, a year later, I got it out again, and I started handing it out to all my friends, and I think I was the only college kid writing tests. And that, that book kind of shaped who I am as a developer, and, and just thank you for putting that out to the world. You're very kind, Davis. Okay, but let me turn it around on you. What would be different about it now? Uh, I, I don't know if I would have gotten here without that, that like that initial push. Maybe I would have. Maybe it would have taken longer. Maybe not. I mean, I think I, I already had the passion. It just gave me some direction to go into that I wasn't getting at school. And, you know, just the hurry up and finish this little bitty project that doesn't really mean much of anything turned into all those little projects started to mean a lot to me that I, did, I didn't have without that, that extra push from that book at the time. And hopefully I would have run into either somebody or myself ended up at a point where I pushed myself that extra mile. But it just gave it to me a little earlier than a lot of the other people around me. That's really interesting. Thank you for that. Thank you. And Dave, I I think my two big takeaways are learning some from your impacts on my my life and career. I have to say thank you since I remember one time I was I went to the one of this it was in St. Louis, Missouri, it was one of the uh, the No Fluff Just Stuff series Mm -hmm. conferences, and you were there talking. This was back in the early days of of Ruby, and right was Rails was dropping out for the first time, and I I showed up as a Java developer who was you know working in a financial services business, and I said, wow, this is a really neat lightweight language that we could use for rapid prototyping and a bunch of stuff and really helps to foster, you know, a really innovative spirit for creative solutions um, on a different type of platform. But even more recently with the blog post, it's helped to say that, you know, it's especially when you're out helping to encourage and help to foster teams to grow, it's very difficult to remain committed to helping people overcome fear and helping people define what will enable them to be successful, which is going to be different for every team and every project. That's not an easy job to do. It's very hard. Your blog post was, you know, very reminding that there's a huge value in, in working towards that as a goal because that is what truly enables teams to be successful and the people on the teams to experience improvement. Well, I agree. Again, thank you very much. appreciate that. Dave, can you wrap us up by telling us what you're doing to keep yourself busy these days? Are you working on anything fun or exciting that you can uh, tell us about? Okay, I'm going to wrap it up in two ways. First of all, I'm going to wrap it up by saying what I appreciate about you guys because fundamentally everything we do is a joint effort and there's a kind of center of gravity that, that moves around as different people do different things. And as long as there are people who care, like you guys do, then we stand a fighting chance. And that's the, the most important thing to me. So I really appreciate that, and I want to say thank you for that. What I'm doing at the moment is I am playing around with functional programming. And in particular, I'm playing around with the Elixir language, simply because, to my mind, the future is functional. 
And right now we don't really have good tools. Well, not quite true. We don't have popular tools that let us develop in a functional style. So Elixir for me is the first functional language that's actually your human readable and a joy to teach. So uh, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at how we can take uh, Elixir the language and turn that into something slightly bigger, uh, more uh, rounded. I hate to use the word ecosystem, but that's really what I mean. So I'm playing with that. Also, I kind of like, in theory at least, along with Andy, we run a publishing business. And so, as you may have noticed, the computer book sections in all of your favorite bookstores has shrunk from being like four or five racks down to one rack down to half a rack. And now they keep it behind the counter in a brown paper bag. (laughs) Um, So against that kind of background, what is the future of technical publishing? Certainly, Stack Overflow is an incredibly great resource, but it answers questions. It doesn't pose challenges. And I think a good book helps challenge you. So how do you how do you continue to do that in tomorrow's world? And that's the other thing that's kind of occupying my mind at the moment. Great. So thank you, Dave. You gave me goosebumps when you were thanking us there. I really appreciate that. And uh, I, I genuinely just, mean it. I mean it's uh, it's absolutely true. We're just out here trying to, to trying to share what we love with everybody else. Well as we all are. So well done. This week's hottest picks Okay, let's do our picks, and we'll start with Craig tonight. All right. Uh, my first pick is uh, an article on Martin Fowler's wiki called Semantic Diffusion, written in December 2006. Basically complains that the word agile has been uh, <laughs> semantically diffused. So, yeah, this has been a problem for a while that we've known about. Uh, my second pick is uh, a programming language called Crystal. It is inspired by Ruby. But it is compiled, and it is uh, has types, uh, but it does type inference. Um, so I found it interesting. Uh, I gave a presentation on it at the uh, local Ruby user group, and uh, the developers of the programming language actually uh, joined in that. So it's, it's pretty cool language. Thanks, Craig. Jason, what are your picks? So I have two tonight. I kept having thoughts about this book I read uh, actually late in 2003. It's called The Startup of You. It's about adapting to the future, investing yourself, and transforming your career um, by Hoffman and Kasnocha. And it made me think a lot about what Dave was talking about, really, you know, a team has to have a goal. That 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 word was said about five times in the podcast tonight in, in Dave's comments. And the book does a really good job of, at a personal level, talking about how to establish a goal. I've actually found that the ideas in the book are very applicable for teams if they need help with goal setting and then how to work towards achieving that goal. So just a, a great piece of information for a team or for yourself. And, of course, I have to promote the Agile Games 2014 conference that I'm helping to organize as basically presented through Agile New England. Uh, it's in Boston in June 2014. So, again, you can register online, agilegames2014.com. Lots of fun stuff and lots of games to help solicit learning, help people overcome fear, help teams become more effective at working together. So, hopefully, a conference that provides value and, uh, and really does help the community go forward where uh, there's lots of, lots of free ideas there uh, out to help people improve. Thanks, Jason. Okay, Amos, what are your picks tonight? Um, I kind of go hand-in-hand right now. I've been uh, interested in support vector machines for a while, and there's libsvm and uh, 
I know that there is a Ruby wrapper for it, but uh, I've also been trying to play around with the FFI library from Ruby. So in order to learn that, I'm trying to wrap the libsvm library with with uh, an FFI Ruby implementation. And I think that they're they're both really neat. You should take a look at them. Okay. I'll go next, and then we'll let Dave have the final word on the picks. So I was going to pick a particular book from the Pragmatic Bookshelf Publishing House. But uh, instead of that, because I couldn't just agree more with, with Dave about the concept of how a book can help inspire you, it can help challenge your thinking, it can give you things to work out, etc. I'm just going to pick the entire pragmatic bookshelf as my pick tonight. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's the cover of Time Magazine next year. <laughs> okay, so go buy them all. Right. <laughs> okay, Dave, what do you got for us for picks tonight? Well, I've got uh, one brand new technology that uh, I'm excited about, uh, and that's Emacs. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I've been using Emacs since the early 80s, and in the last six months, I've realized that I've been using it wrong for the last, whatever it is, 30 years. And so I've been relearning Emacs, which has proved to be actually way, way harder than learning it the first time, if that's even imaginable, because I have to basically unlearn a whole bunch of really bad habits. And I was inspired by watching all of these people using Vim and basically tiling their windows and just you know making it as plain, as easy as possible. And it struck me I can do the same thing in Emacs, but still have you know all of that extra Emacs power behind it. So that's been my, my new regime for the last six months, and it has made a massive difference to the way I code. So um, I'm very, very happy about that. The second thing that I'm really hot on right now, and this is not something that's easy to do, but given a chance, I think every developer, particularly those who are feeling jaded or, you know, this industry is not cool anymore, should, if they could go get a chance, go to India or China and go and find the startup incubators there. I was really lucky. I was in Beijing and the folks took me to, there's a, a road in Beijing where all the cafes are basically startup. Um, incubator type cafes and you walk in there and it's like you lose 10 years of age it's you know your the enthusiasm and the excitement and the energy and just the sheer number of good ideas are inspiring same thing in india it's in a way we've got into the kind of the same rut here with startups as we've got into with you know agility and that is, you know, it's all about mezzanine and first round and all this kind of bullshit. Whereas over there, it's about, I've got this really, really great idea. And you know what? I'm going to put it in front of a billion people. Um, and that's getting back to basics. So if you ever feel jaded, you know, get on a really long plane ride and then go and see the startups in those countries. They are fantastic. Great picks, Dave. And wow, it has just been such a pleasure to have you on the show with us tonight. I'd like to uh, thank you again for joining us. We've certainly enjoyed our time with you. And I have enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that's all we have time for today. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening, and keep living this agile life. 
This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.